the point is that not all incentives are created equal. And people are motivated by incentives, but we need to understand them. Assuming, oh, I just throw money. So first of all, incentives is definitely not just money. There are, there are many other things that we care about. Every decision we make is guided by incentives. Group incentives, individual incentives, how we are rewarded shapes how we behave and the choices we make. From financial incentives to social and political incentives, our lives are shaped by the external forces pushing us in certain directions. Have you ever thought about why you do what you do or why decisions get made a certain way? We were curious about this and decided to do a deep dive on the topic of incentives in this special three-part podcast series called What Drives Us. I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. Over the next few weeks, we'll explore how and why we do what we do. In particular, we are interested in how incentives in education and government impact the lives of kids and the adults who serve them and their families. Today, I'm joined by Uri Ganizi, Epstein Atkinson Chair in Management Leadership at the UC San Diego Rady School of Management and best-selling author of Mixed Signals, How Incentives Really Work to talk about what incentives are, how they work, and how to recognize and understand their impact in every aspect of our lives. You are a behavioral economist. I don't know if everyone knows what that means, but talk a little bit about that part of the of economics and how you ended up there. And how do you think about your work? So behavioral economics is basically, if you look at economics, those of you who took classes in economics, it's uh, it's a very boring, very dry kind of things. In particular, because people are reduced into very simple machines, right? So you have assumptions about, for example, I'm so smart that I can calculate everything. You have my full attention. I am selfish in the sense that I'm only interested in profit maximizing. I have no emotions. And behavioral economists, Instead of assuming stuff, we look at the data, we run experiments, and we see how people actually behave. And when you relate it to incentives, it becomes even more interesting because we are, we have incentives. You have incentive to talk with me. I have incentive to talk with you. My incentive is simple. I want to get to more people. I want to sell more books. I'm not sure about your incentives, but I guess they are similar to this. Everyone has incentives in what they do. And that's behavioral economics. And this, isn't, this is not an old field. This is a field that's kind of come about in the last, what would you say, three decades? Yes and no. So if you look at Adam Smith, you know, you look at Keynes, you look at the, the big economists prior to World War II, they didn't understand that they're dealing with people. But they didn't assume. What happened after World War II, econ became much more mathematical. They built models that uh, were used to, to analyze people. And when you build models, you need to make simplifying assumptions. Well, and I would imagine your work gets um, more and more interesting as we understand more and more about the brain and what makes people tick at, at any given time. I'm curious if you find incentives sometimes to be counterintuitive. I mean, how often as you figure out what has incentivized a particular person or employee group or corporate entity, does it sort of leave your head scratching at first trying to figure out why the incentive worked or didn't work. That's why I like my job. More often than not, I'm wrong. And when I write, it's less interesting than when I'm wrong, right? So you, you run an experiment, you get what you expected, then it's kind of technical. I do it for many years already. I know how to write papers like this. The more interesting cases are when you do something, you run the experiment and you find different results. Uh, the point is that not all incentives are created equal. 
And people are motivated by incentives, but we need to understand them. Assuming, oh, I just throw money. So first of all, incentives is definitely not just money. There are many other things that we that we care about and could be used as incentive, but I can pay you some money and get the opposite result. You get it all the time. Let me give you a, maybe an intuitive result. The book is about signaling. How the incentive that I have sends signals. So imagine that you lived in a cold place and you see your neighbor walking to a recycle center with a trash bag filled with 100 soda cans in a cold morning. In snow, make it dramatic. I would feel, I don't know about you, I would think, wow, she's great. She's really willing to, to do this stuff. She cares about the environment. She's probably going to think that about herself, right? She's going to think, ah, I'm a good person to tell Imagine now that your city decides to give five cents incentive for every soda can that you recycle. Exactly the same story. Now you see your neighbor in a cold morning walking with under soda cans. You say, wow, she's cheap for five dollars, really? Right? So it changes the perception of what she is doing. It probably also changes her perception of what she's doing. Is it really that important if it's only five dollars? So you learn from the, 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 the incentive teach you something about the interaction, about the environment. In places where you don't have enough information, you build the story using the incentives. And yeah, what I found interesting your, uh, about your book is, and I hadn't thought about it in this light, but it, it not only builds the story for the outside observer, but it builds the story for you and, and how you perceive yourself. And so there must be a lot of nuance to that side of things, to how you incentivize in order to send the right self signals and the right self, you know, create the right self perception. And is there are there tricks to doing that? Like how do you how do you think about that? And I, I just give you the example of I recently learned dialectical behavioral therapy, which is a kind of a spin-off of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. But in that, the most important I was, you know, kind of learning it to hone my skills as a parent. And in studying it, it felt like so many of the things that would get the right results were counterintuitive to my gut instincts on how to react. And yet they completely resulted in, you know, a positive, successful experience. And so how much do we know about how to apply a particular tactic or a particular incentive in order to get the right response? And because it, it seems very difficult, especially when it's counterintuitive. One of the counterintuitive things with self-signaling is that it means that I don't know everything about myself, right? So I, I am learning about myself from the way I behave which is kind of hard to grasp, but if you think about it, we do it uh, quite often. Well, imagine a physician that you go to the physician and they are paid per scan that they send you, per treatment that they send you. They're getting incentives to treat you more and more. So think about back surgeries. You go to the doctor and probably the doctor can look at you and say, if you have back problems, can say, Jill, don't worry, rest for a week, it's going to be okay. Or, sorry, you need an a surgery, nothing else. But then there is the gray area in which most of the cases are. And over there, they have to decide, you know, oh, you came here with these symptoms. Well, you can go home and try resting. Maybe this will work. But we can also do the procedure now. If I do the procedure now, I'm going to make a couple of thousand dollars. If you think that the physician is not influenced by that, I think you're very naive. But it might be that the physicians don't understand it, right? So they might think that they might convince this themselves through self-deception that they're actually acting in the best interest of the patient. If they know that all the patient needs is resting, they wouldn't do it to themselves. But in the gray area, that's where they can tilt the, the information that they have in different ways, right? But that's very scary. So 
from my perspective, for example, if I have a back problem, I will go, I travel a lot to Israel. So I will go to a surgeon in Israel, tell that person, look, I'm going to get the surgery. If I'll get it, it's going to be in the U.S. So this surgeon has zero incentive to... Tell you to get surgery. Exactly. That's what I'll try to do. I'll try to get advice from someone who doesn't have incentives, right, to do it. So that's that's from our perspective. But more, if you do, if you want to look at yourself as an honest person, it's you should know that you are influenced by incentives in your perception. Can we though? So can we just peel apart? Since we're on the topic of healthcare, can we peel apart for a second, like a big problem, like the opioid crisis, right? And so, you know, my understanding of it is that some pretty scrappy data was used to create a marketing program that assured doctors that they were doing the right thing by judging pain and that no patient should feel pain and that this was a solution to it that would do no harm. Through no fault of their own, maybe, doctors started to prescribe more and more opioids. I don't know if there were other incentives, you know, in Wisconsin that as well, in terms of economic incentives for doctors or for hospitals. And certainly, Many patients immediately felt no pain, but then we know, like, the longer tail result of it is we have this major op- opioid crisis. So looking at a, problem, a massive problem like that through your lens, how do we use incentives to now unwind that if we're really all motivated to unwind it? I think we can take, we can talk about this definitely for more than an hour, right? I think it's, as a physician, my guess is that if a patient comes with pain, you want to help the patient. That's your incentive, to help the patient with their pain. So you prescribe this magic pill that, that really solves the problem and they are happy. They don't come and complain, but you also want them to be to feel good. And then you might not really look too deep into the data. But the point of the problem with this expansion starts when it starts to be more and more visible. That we, Now we know, right? I still, you know, I, I went to some, I, had, uh, I fell, I tried surfing, fell on my ribs. It's painful. Can't sleep. I go, go to the ER and... That they give me like 10 days of opioids. That's not good, right? We know that if I'm unlucky and they have this disposition, I can be addicted already and not for the right reason, right? It's not, it's like the back surgery. When you need it, do it. But when, you, when your pain is such that you need it, of course, use it, but don't use it otherwise. But I think that the incentive for many doctors, there might have been other incentives. I'm sure there were, but some of it is you don't want your patient to suffer, so you do it. The more interesting question to me are the people behind it, the people that knew that they are doing something evil and kept doing this. And there are many examples. Think about the VW um, emission problem, if you remember. VW created some device that when you tested their emission, it showed false number. It showed much, much smaller emission there. Now, in order to do this, you needed at least, say, 100 engineers. So think about these German engineers sitting in, I don't know, Frankfurt. In the morning, if they'll see you putting the plastic bottle in the wrong recycle bin, they will be like, oh, you're horrible. And then they sit in their offices and they talk with each other about how they can cheat the testing. So one of them can say, oh, I'm just an engineer. They asked me to create this. They didn't tell me what they're going to use it for. And another one can say, but at the end of the day, how did the opioid, at some point, the data was there and it didn't stop. And even today, it's not, I don't think that it's regulated enough. There are many incentives around this, right? You can think about the engineers, you can think about the pharmaceutical industry, right? We like to think about the big pharma as evil. I don't think that they're evil. I think that they're creating lots of amazing stuff that keeps you and I in much better shape. But they also do some bad, very bad stuff. And the opioid was an example. 
I just don't understand the people that know. It's like going back to the 60s and 70s when the evidence about smoking were so strong already and the tobacco company tried to hide it. I just don't understand these people. I understand the incentives that they have. I don't understand how they can live. I do wonder about that. Like, is there something that changes people when it's an individual faced with a set of data versus, you know, this bigger entity? Like, this, does groups think in some way change behavior because some people are more important than other people and so the group follows, you know, when I talk to my kids about incentives now, they're both teenagers, one's about to go off to college. You know, when you're trying to figure out why someone is motivated to do something, just, you know, there's certain things to follow, right? Follow the money, follow the power, follow, you know, self-interest. Like there's certain things to, that'll help you kind of start to sort out why is someone doing what they're doing or why is an entity doing what they're doing? And so is there something about the power of the group that shifts. Right. So I think that there is something that psychologists call diffusion of responsibility. It would have happened without me. It doesn't need me, right? Another one is that if I won't do it, someone else will do it. We find all this justification. We talked about this uh, self-deception. We find justification to do bad stuff that helps us in terms of our incentives. So think about the simple game. In order to create something evil, we need either you or me to press a button. The one that will do it will get money for doing it. Now, maybe if it was just me and I will need to create to do some harm to another person, I would say, no, I wouldn't do it. I'm not being paid enough. But maybe if I know that you can do it, I'd say, well, if I won't do it, she's going to do it anyway, right? So he's going to suffer and I'm not going to earn anything, right? So that that's the kind of justification that you can find. And it is very dangerous. Now, help me think about that in terms of, you know, a big public problem. We spend a lot of time as a foundation looking at public education, which is run by the government. And we think that it's very interesting, right? Because there are loads of incentives in all of these things. But if you look at education going way back, right, like 100 years, nothing's changed very much for anyone. And, you know, we, we run another podcast called Last Night at School Committee, where we follow the actions and activities of the Boston Public Schools School Committee. And we always find it very interesting, right? Because you're so into a particular meeting, but then you do a look back to the 1970s and the same topics were being tossed around and discussed. And so it makes me wonder if there are certain people who are winning all the time who end up being like the biggest decision makers, right? Like it keeps, you know, this industry keeps people employed. It keeps tons of consultants active. You know, there's and so it's kind of like the end user who would be most incentivized to change it only stays in it for, what, 12 years and then they're out. Right. And and the parents are kind of maybe they're in a span of, you know, maybe 12 to 15 years, 12 to 20 years. And so is there a reason or incentives, a reason misalignment of incentives, a reason for our public education system not serving our country broadly, but only serving those who really have the money and the time to dig in and try to make change individually or for small groups. Right, 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 right. So you know about education way more than I do. I think that incentive is a big problem over there because once you set the incentives and that's, we know that that's the problem with grades, for example, and with the college admission. So now you have objective measures that they need to face. You're going to teach them in order to, to be successful on this objective measure. Right? They need to get a high score on the SAT. You need to teach them to the SAT. You teach to the test, right? 
This problem was there in the 70s and in the 50s, and it was there always, right? The incentive could come in useful in very few but important places. You mentioned the teenager that is about to go to college. Teenagers are really annoying people. What can you do? They're annoying, right? And one of the things that some of them don't want to do is study to the SAT. And that's a place where, as a parent, you can tell them, you know what, that's a place to bribe them. This one test, they'll never do another SAT in their life. And that's, that has such huge implication for the rest of their life. So you can bribe them to be successful. Oh, interesting. So that's uh, teaching them to read, giving them incentives to read is really complicated because you don't want them just to read books. You want them to enjoy reading. That's, that we don't really know how to do with incentive. But if there's one test that they need to ace, that you can, that, there you can use uh, some kind of incentives, right? It's, it's a complicated issue. So, for example, we talk, I, I try to do stuff about habit formation. And education, in some sense, could be habit formation. So reading is a great example of habit formation. We, we ask them to read, and then we do this. And I remember as a kid, in school, we, we read, in, in high school, we read Dostoevsky. Now, no 17-year-old should read Dostoevsky. I was not mature enough to read it, right? It's great literature. And even before that, I read these, you know, trashy books that the Westerns and stuff like that. And the people asked my mother, why do you allow him to read this? And she said, look, as long as he reads, I don't care. Right? So she, her perception was, if you enjoy reading, you'll continue reading later. And I think, at least for me, it was right. And the, the stuff in school, I just didn't enjoy. Right, so the one incentive is to try and find stuff that people will enjoy. That's what Harry Potter did to reading, for example. Right, many kids started reading Harry Potter and then kept reading. So the the incentive in this case could be uh, same is true for math, for example. You can teach math in a very dry way, maybe even higher level, or you can teach them, can teach the students such that they will enjoy what they are doing, understand the intuition, give them examples that make it more fun for them, and then maybe the, you'll be more successful in teaching. Right. So making stuff more fun is a type of incentive. Absolutely. I remember reading about um, another example you gave about Chicago teachers who are given a bonus at the beginning of the year that had to be given back. Data does show that if you incentivize teachers for the kids to do better on these objective measures, the kids do do better on these objective measures. So it's like the, the physicians in the previous example that we talked about. The physician, the teacher, they go to school and say, we're giving everything. Turns out that if I give you enough incentive, you'll, do, you'll give even more. You'll do an even better job. How often is money the right incentive? And even when it's the right incentive, it, so- it sounds like it depends still how you apply the, the dollars. Right, 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 right. It absolutely does because they, it could send, it sends a, a message. So say that you ask me to come and help you move your sofa. And at the end, you'll give me $10. That would be very insulting, right? Because it means the signal that you're sending is that I'm, I'm not your friend. I'm a hired hand. You don't want to reciprocate anything. If you buy me beer that costs $5, that's fine, right? It sends a very different message. Imagine going to a friend, to friends for dinner, and you were supposed to bring a bottle of wine. You show up, you say, sorry, I didn't have time, but here's $50. That's also very strange, right? The whole issue around gifts, right? So if my wife will give me cash for my birthday, that would be very strange. Gifts send a signal. 
money sends a very cold signal in many cases. So that's why it could be that. So imagine staying with the example, imagine that I go for a weekend and I ask my assistant to stay and work on some uh, grant application that I need to submit on Monday. I show up on Monday and then I give him $10. He'll be very insulted. If I give him chocolate that costs $10, he'll be happy about that. If I give him $10,000, he'll be very happy. Right, so the amount of money also sends a signal, right? Instead of telling him your weekend is worth ten dollars, they tell him your weekend is worth ten thousand dollars. Then you'll be happy, right? But the money and whether it's money or not money, all of them send signals about the type of relationship we have or what do you think about your effort. Yeah, and it's interesting the examples you're giving, uh, you know, about your wife giving you money versus a gift, or you giving your employee ten dollars versus a box of chocolates. It, so we must put a significant amount of value on the actions of an individual. And so how does, if you are a teacher running a classroom, a principal running a school, a CEO running a company, how do you think about advising those types of leaders in terms of the signals that they send and how to discern what what people most appreciate about them? Right, so I can tell you that I care about quality. If you're a company, we care about the quality of our products. And then if I pay you based on the quantity that you're producing, quality is going to suffer, right? So if in my case, we are judged by the papers that we're publishing, by the research that we're doing. If my dean will come to me and say, okay, we'll give you $1,000, $10,000, a million dollars per paper, I'll produce many more papers, maybe. And not just because of the money, also because now I know that that's what she's expecting me to do. That's what it means to be good. The papers will not be good. The quality of the papers will not be good. Same could be true for education. If you ask me for a lot, I'll do it, but the quality will not be good. On the other hand, she can specify, these are the top journals. That's where I want you to publish. That's a very different uh, signal. The problem in, in education, in the business world, is that in many cases, it's much easier to measure quantity than quality. So I know you spend a lot of time advising companies on a variety of topics. And I, I think one of them is on employment, right? And in attracting employees. And, you know, in the education industry, well, all across all industry right now, right? There's this dearth of employees for the number of available jobs. And so how do you advise people to use incentives to attract people to shift fields or to come to a particular company or school district or whatever it might be? The point is really to find what is it that people really care about. And it doesn't have to be just money. It could be working from home, so working remotely. So organized maybe they, such that they'll have to come only three or four days a week to the school. What is it that your teachers are looking for? What is it that they are missing? Right? And try to understand that and try to incentivize them using that. Do, do people typically know what they're missing? So let me give you an example where people don't know it. That will uh, how you pay people. So I worked with a company, Edmonds. Uh, if you want to buy a car in the U.S., you go and click the car, and then you get to their website to see reviews and you see recommendations. And then when you're ready, you put in your zip code and you see ads from Toyota Corolla 20 miles from you, right? They wanted people to buy through to click 
on their on this link and go to the to the dealership and buy the car through them. So they gave them say five hundred dollars in discount if you buy the car through Edmonds. That's a lot of money, five hundred dollars. Less so when it's compared with the purchase of a new car of say thirty thousand dollars. Then it's you know it's still a lot of money, but not not that much. So they saw that there was some increase when they introduced these incentives, but not as much as they expected. What we did, we looked for what is it that car buyers really don't like to pay for, and we found that they don't like to pay for gas. So instead of five hundred dollars in cash, we gave them five hundred dollars in a gas card. Now you can really. Imagine yourself standing in the gas station and refueling the car. And that's a very annoying, and you say, wow, I can do it for weeks, right? That's so much money. That's great. And, and we found much more success when it was $500 in gas car. It's so interesting. The $200, I think, if I remember correctly, was as effective as the $500. Right now, if we ask you, what do you prefer to get, $500 in cash or $200 in gas card? Of course, we'd say $500 in cash. But when you look at the way you behave, the way you react to the incentive, we see that just calling it gas money makes it much more attractive. That's what I try to say about the teachers. Yeah, and it's also what are they weighing it against, right? Like in, in that example, if I remember it correctly, you were weighing it against the price of the car. And so $500 is nominal when you're talking about something that's tens of thousands of dollars. But when you're filling a tank of gas and you can see how it pays for something that you're going to do multiple times before it goes away, it just... It, how did you figure it out? You just asked, you, so you asked customers what, what annoys you about driving. We ask, and we, so, you know, we have cars, so we have, we can use those introspection. I'm not a teacher, so I don't know what is it that teachers would do, but I would sit down with teachers and ask them, what is it that annoys you that if we take it away would make your life better? So I'm sure that they have some tasks that they have to do that they don't like. Maybe you can find someone that will do that for them. How much does your work, Gary, um, intersect with what we're learning about neuroscience and how the brain works? Are, are you can you make connections between oh this incentive works because like this what we're talking about right now feels like there has to be some sort of connection between how you felt in a moment and how you perceive things and you know it's kind of a full body experience that you're talking about in terms of learning which seems to embed more and and so is that actually what's going on is is when we work within someone's interest set, incentive set, you know, we work it, around things that make them joyous, whatever the incentive happens to be, it's more embedded. And so there's more learning that, that happens. So I'm not a neuroscientist. I know very little about the brain, right? But we do know that many of the things that we call incentives are basically some kind of chemical reaction, some neurons that are firing that makes you happy, right? And makes you feel better about yourself, right? So we do know that. And that's definitely an incentive, right? So if you think about it in the most primitive way, when you eat sugar, you get some kind of incentives that, you know, you, you feel good about yourself. For me, that's incentive. Think about eating sugar, you can say, okay, your brain was developed when there wasn't enough sugar around. That's the evolutionary story, right? So and we could add something sweet, you should have added. Now we have too much of it. So now in our brain, there is some kind of fight between this more primitive and need to get as much sugar as you can, and the more evolved thing that we're eating too much. And think about it, and you can model it. But unfortunately, I'm I don't know yeah, enough. Yeah, yeah, no, it. I do, I think it's I think it's very interesting though that the two are actually you know very connected. And the more we learn about how our brains work, the better we'll probably be at um, in knowing what rewards 
work and, and how to incentivize the right behavior. So how do you use your work for yourself? You know, just just as you as you live your life, how do you when you're when you're purchasing something, when you're making a big decision, how, like how do you help us give us some tips for just kind of daily life and how we think about the actions that we're taking? So one thing that we should think about, and it's true when you're making decisions, small decisions for yourself or big decision as a CEO of a company, that you need to use common sense, right? Which sounds like, you know, so every company has a CEO, a CFO, whatever, they need a common sense office. And it's found that we look at the incentives, not just, oh, we're going to pay them more money, like the example with the lady, the, your neighbor that works with the soda cans, right? Think about, use common sense to think, what, what would I do in this case? What would other people do? How would they perceive this? What is it that I'm signaling by this incentive? This common sense is something that you should always, always use. And people too often don't use it. And the second one is try to use data. So if it's a company, it's very easy. Just run some kind of A-B testing. Think about it. So common sense could get you, could get many of the problems that, that you have, could solve them. But after that, after you use the common sense, try to simply use simple A-B testing and see what, what works and what doesn't. Does this like play out in your, in just in your daily life about, you know, how you tip or how much you tip or whether you do one thing versus another thing yes. in, during the day. So it's, it's very annoying to be around me for many reasons. That's one of them, that I overthink these simple things, right? Why did he do what he did? Why did she go there instead of there, right? And what, you know, even when you tip, you know, why am I tipping so much? In many cases, uh, you know, so in the U.S. you tip because that's otherwise you'll be the way they will chase you. But it was in Italy now, over there, the, the default is zero. But sometimes you like giving tip because the, like the original idea of tipping that it's going to incentivize the server service provider to, to do a better job, right? And when I do it, you know, I, you go to a place that you clearly won't go back to in your life and still you leave a large team. Why do you do this? I do this because it makes me feel good about myself, right? That's the self-signaling. I'm a generous person. They were generous to me with the way they helped me, and I'm going to be generous to them with this, and that makes me reciprocating like this, makes me feel good about myself. So I always question when I do something like that that seems stupid from my economic uh, studies, I try to understand why do I do it, and I think that that's it's it's, fun. Yeah, I, I think it's fun as well. And I think it's, you know, for us, it's important in all the work we do to, you know, when someone comes in with a proposal to think through why are they proposing doing it this way? And will it really play out the way that they're saying it will and, and why? So I totally agree with you. I think there, it's very important, to, a very important thing to understand in order to understand why the world works the way it does or why we do what we do. So right now you're out promoting your new book, Mixed Signals. And I'm wondering what you're thinking about like what what are you going to be playing around with next what's kind of on the horizon for you uh right so no not not another book for a while it takes a lot of energy i really enjoyed it so i'm just doing my research right i'm trying to look at uh, now i'm trying to get a bit more into health so how can we improve the there are really interesting questions so think about, uh, I'm 56, imagine 
someone my age going to the doctor and the doctor tells him, hey, you're pre-diabetic, you should walk half an hour a day and things will be so much better for you. And diabetes is like horrible disease that's very strong incentives. And yet this guy doesn't get out of the couch to walk half an hour a day, not run a marathon, but walk half an hour a day. How can we use incentives when the incentives are already so strong? How can I put additional incentives into situations like this? So that's one direction. Another one is from the health providers. How can we get them to to do better, right? So interesting question is how to use AI in this, right? So they get lots of input from AI. How can they actually use it to improve what uh, what they're doing? So. Take some, imagine a physician, again, 56-year-old physician that is doing the same thing for 30 years and it worked very well for them and now they have to change, right? How do you get them to change it? And things like that, I think that health is a, is a really exciting area for incentives and for behavioral interventions in general. I think that's great. Well, I appreciate your time today. Thank you very much for spending this past hour with me. I think it's a great framing for the conversations we're, we're going to have next. So it's great to talk with you and thank you so much. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Uri Ganesi. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. And to learn more about incentives, and particularly how they guide big decisions around education, check out our other podcast, Last Night at School Committee. We recap every Boston school board meeting and discuss the biggest decisions impacting students. Subscribe to Last Night at School Committee in your podcast app.